the Supreme Court and relisting. What is it? Why does it matter? John Elwood of SCOTUS Blog joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Thank you for joining us, John. How are things going in Washington, D.C.? They're good. They're a little weird, but they're very good. Thanks. I think that it might be the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that might be the way to describe our times these days is weird. Uh, so no, I appreciate that. So, uh, but uh, anyway, John, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, you've argued before the Supreme Court many times. And uh, how many cases has it been uh, in front of our nation's highest court? I have argued nine cases in front of the Supreme Court. Okay, nine cases. Excellent, excellent. So we're definitely talking to the right person here. So our show today is about relisting. And, uh, you know, John, my, my experience with the Supreme Court and its inner workings is somewhat limited. Of course, you know, in law school, we learned about how, how cases got to the Supreme Court and, uh, you know, how they got jurisdiction and things like that. But in terms of how those cases are selected, because the Supreme Court is not obligated to uh, review every case that comes before it. So in terms of how they make that selection, we didn't really get into that. So, John, can I use that as a starting place? Can you walk us through that process of the typical case coming before the Supreme Court for review? Sure. There's very little mandatory jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. That is, very few cases come to the Supreme Court as a matter of right, as they would in any other court where somebody just files a notice of appeal and the Supreme Court has to take it. There wasn't very much leading up to the 1980s. In the 1980s, they did away with virtually all the rest of it. So aside from a, a small number of redistricting cases and election cases, virtually everything is on the certiorari or discretionary docket where it's totally up to the Supreme Court whether they take it or not. And uh, the Supreme Court gets uh, around 8,000 petitions for certiorari each year. And it takes, I'd say, around 65 to 75 in an average term. So a tiny fraction of the cases that they're asked to take. And the Supreme Court looks at them uh, overwhelmingly. Their main consideration they're looking at is whether there is disagreement among the courts of appeals about a legal question uh, or a so-called circuit split. Otherwise, uh, every once in a while, they'll take a case that doesn't have a circuit split simply because it's very important. So, John, as I understand it, I've heard uh, you know, legal scholars talk about the influence of the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, we're all familiar when we read the news how influential the Supreme Court can be on the cases it does review. But uh, some legal scholars out there think that the Supreme Court is even more influential on the cases it does not review. And so can you map out that certiorari process for us and uh, how that works? I know there's a private conference and I know that the justices get together, but uh, can you walk us through, map that out for us? Sure. You have 90 days ordinarily to file a cert petition after losing in whatever court you're coming from, whether that's a federal court of appeals or a state Supreme Court. The court temporarily, because of COVID-19, has extended that to the full statutory limit, which is 150 days. So you have essentially three to five months to file a cert petition. At that point, your opponent uh, can either just say, I'm not going to file anything, Uh, or they have 30 days by default to file a brief in opposition. And then it takes about another month beyond that for the court to sit down and decide whether they're going to take your case. Um, uh, You can take a little bit extra time. uh, If you you were the winner in the Court of Appeals, you can actually ask for extensions, and the court will generally give up to 60 days before it starts getting grumpy. Um, And the upshot is that, you know, from the decision in the lower court to when the Supreme Court decides is in the ordinary case, 
you know, around six months, roughly. Okay. And so they do this at private conferences. Now, as I understand it, these happen uh, quite frequently. Well, what's the general frequency for those? So the Supreme Court sits usually about once a week. Every once in a while, they'll take a couple weeks off in between, uh, particularly in the middle of winter, you know, uh, between Thanksgiving and say, you know, President's Day, things slow down a little bit. And sometimes they'll have a couple of weeks without a conference. But generally, they get together every Friday um, towards the end of the, uh, the term. And the term runs from October to June. They switch from Friday conferences to Thursday conferences. And don't ask me why. Uh, they do, however, <laughs> take the summer off. They typically don't have any conferences between essentially the end of June and the end of September. Well, John, as I understand it, relisting is a relatively new practice for the Supreme Court, and it occurs at these private conferences of the justices. So can you tell us how it works and where this practice came from? Sure. Um, well, uh, to begin with, when you're getting so many thousands of petitions, the, the justices at those conferences can't talk about all of the cases. So they actually have some private documents, uh, which, you know, people don't see They're you know, they're squirreled away in the Supreme Court's papers. They will be eventually released, you know, years into the future. But they have a conference, a so-called conference list, which are the cases that they're actually going to discuss at one of those conferences. Every other case that doesn't make that list is on a list that is named the, the coolest name in Supreme Court dumb. It's called the dead list. Uh, and if you're not on the conference list, you're on the dead list and your case is going to be denied. So what relisting is, is when uh, a case is actually discussed at conference one week, and then when the court comes back together the following week or in two weeks, whenever the court gets together again, uh, it is uh, discussed again. And they don't let they don't let the public know which cases have been relisted. You have to figure it out for yourself by looking at the court's public docket, which is available on the internet, and seeing, you know, it will say distributed for conference of September 30th, you know, 2019. And then you'll say, aha, you see it when it's updated, and it will say distributed for conference of October 6th, 2019. And when you see it listed for two consecutive conferences, that means it's been relisted. Cases have been relisted for a long time. Because, you know, all it means at a, at a minimum is that the justices couldn't take care of your case in a single conference. They wanted more time to talk about it. And in, you know, the pre-2014 world, and I'll explain the significance of that later, um, in the pre-2014 world, it would mean, you know, maybe one of the justices heard something at conference about a case that they were intrigued by and they wanted to go back and look at the case again. Or maybe uh, one or more of the justices voted to grant review in a case, but they couldn't get the required number of four. It takes four justices to hear a case for certiorari or review to be granted. Um, and they decided they wanted a couple of weeks to beat the bushes and talk to some people and try to get those other votes uh, so they can get the case granted. And sometimes they would relist the case so that they could write an opinion about a case uh, that they decided not to, to hear. The, you know, the justices not infrequently write dis opinions dissenting from denial of review of a case, where they'll say, we really should have taken this case, or explaining why they didn't take the case. And uh, when that happens, they tend to relist it every week so that the justice, the chief justice can check in and say, hey, how's that dissent going? So it doesn't just languish. So they've done this for a long time. Now, uh, that brings us to 2014. And in uh, April of 2014, 
I and uh, Hashem Mupin, who is now a lawyer at the Justice Department, both kind of noticed that we were getting more and more relisted cases and that these, these cases were relisted and then uh, the court would grant cert. And what we have figured out, what we inferred at the time, and what has later been proven by, you know, basically various law clerks coming out or justices commenting to reporters or something, is that uh, there was a series of cases in late 2013. There were three cases where the court dismissed cases as improvidently granted, which is known by the acronym DIG, digging, uh, dismisses improvidently granted. There were three cases digged because there were problems with them. A case had become moot. The controversy was no longer live. That is, you know, somebody had died or something about the case meant that there was no longer a live legal controversy. And because uh, of those three digs in a row, uh, which is kind of a big event when the court goes to all the trouble of deciding we're going to hear this case, and then they later realize they can't hear it, that's a problem for everybody. Uh, The court puts a lot of resources into those cases. The lawyers put a lot of resources into those cases. I mean, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in briefing. And so the court in very early 2014 adopted a practice whereby they would routinely relist every case they were seriously thinking about granting. So essentially at one of the conferences that say, who votes to grant, they get four votes or more. And then they say, okay, we're going to take this. And then they spend the next week, uh, they relist it and they tell the law clerks, go back and make sure there's no problem with mootness, make sure that this issue was raised properly and that there's no reason we won't be able to resolve the question we think we're going to resolve. And so this is that practice is uh, known as realist limbo, where the cases just keep getting cycled through. You don't know if it's going to go through review or not. And so as I understand it, you all have run some probability analysis on that. And so the longer your case stays in realist limbo, what happens to the odds that it'll actually be reviewed by the Supreme Court? It, it seems to me after, you know, we've looked at the statistics over, you know, something of like four or five years at this point. Uh, that if the court doesn't take your case on the first or second relist, so soon after the case is there, the odds of it being reviewed actually go way down, and the odds increase that there's going to be some sort of opinion respecting denial. And usually it is, as I say, an opinion respecting denial where one of the justices either writes an opinion saying, you know, we should have taken this case, or here's why I agree not to take this case. Once in a while, Um, you get a case where the court summarily reverses, where they think the error is so clear that they take the case and they reverse without even hearing argument first. The court doesn't like to do that, but they still do it at least a couple times every year. Uh, It actually happened one time today where uh, the court started relisting a case way back in October, you know, months and months before anyone had ever heard of the coronavirus. And uh, and then finally, after relisting the case literally 20 times, they issued an opinion where they uh, vacated the, the lower court decision and sent it back. But that's the thing is that if they don't resolve your if they don't take your case in the first couple of times, the odds start going through the roof uh, that there's going to be some sort of opinion respecting denial. So, John, we're, we're about out of time, but I do want to hit uh, two last questions real quick. And so, you know, when you find your case is in this relist limbo and uh, you're always having to check in uh, to see what's going on and whether or not it's going to be resolved in the way that you want or whether or not you're going to actually going to go before the court and argue. I mean, from a practical matter, what does that mean for the lawyers and their clients? Is this something, you know, constantly being in a state of ready that uh, creates a lot of additional expense for a legal team? 
I, I wouldn't say it creates a lot of additional expense because you don't have to do anything until the case is granted. Ordinarily, you uh, typically have months and months to brief a case up after they take agree to take a case. Uh, but what it does do is it, it puts everybody on edge for a while. You know, I've known uh, several people. I've been there myself, but the highest number I've ever been there is three realists where I was uh, a party waiting for it to hear news. But, you know, the case that was summarily vacated today had been relisted 20 times, which was a near record. The, the most I've ever seen is 21 relists, which can take up most of the court's term. I mean, literally, you can spend the entire term from the end of September until June waiting to hear from the Supreme Court. And for those types of cases, it's very stressful uh, trying to see whether you're going to be, on the one hand, you won below and you might find that you have lost and the Supreme Court's not even going to give you a chance to argue your case uh, because they've summarily reversed you or your opinion uh, favoring you. Or uh, you might be waiting there and at first you think, oh, we're going to get reviewed. This is great. And then the longer it drags on, you figure you're going to get some sort of dissent from denial and you know, you'll be stuck with the opinion of the lower court. So it's stressful, uh, but it isn't necessarily expensive. All right. Just last question real quick here, John. So what's your best piece of advice for lawyers out there that are facing a possible relisting? At that point, um, you can always submit a supplemental brief of about 3,000 words. Um, if there's anything that's happened in the case that might push them one way or the other, that's your opportunity to do that. But the important thing to remember is it has to be something new. You can't file a brief telling them something that happened months and months ago. But if there's anything new that might you know, move the needle one direction or another, you can lob in a supplemental brief at any time uh, at about 3,000 words. And here's my truly nerd advice. If you keep it uh, short enough, uh, typically under five pages, you don't even have to do table of contents and table of authorities. So there you have it. Save a couple bucks. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, John. If our listeners, they want to follow up, how can they find you? You can find me, I'm at Arnold and Porter, uh, and you can certainly contact me through my address on that, on um, Arnold and Porter website, or you can check me through SCOTUS blog, which is the premier Supreme Court blog, uh, and there's a link to email me there. All right, and thank you listeners for tuning in. We'll cite our sources for this episode, including the several uh, posts that John wrote that we used for this episode on the SCOTUS blog. We'll put those on our website, legaltalknetwork.com. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.